Today's scripture is Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray, then we'll get in. So, so Father, just pray this morning um, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts uh, would be pleasing to you, uh, for you are our rock and you are our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So, uh, in Victor Hugo's uh, 1862 novel, Les Miserables, Jean Valjean spends 19 years in prison for the crime of stealing a loaf of bread to save his sister's son from starvation. And after being released, he's desperate. He's got no friends, no resources. He's got no place to go. And he finds himself at the door of a bishop. And this bishop welcomes him in, feeds him a great dinner, provides a warm place for him to lay his head for the night. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean is just so caught up with fear and worry and all of what's happened the last 19 years that he plots and he actually acts on taking some of the bishop's really expensive silver place settings, and he runs away. And the next morning, the bishop awakes and is made aware of the night's events. And as he's sitting down for breakfast, there's a knock at the bishop's door, and it opens, and there's three brigadier officers holding Jean Valjean. And here's, I'm just going to read an excerpt from the novel of what happens next. The bishop, looking at Jean Valjean, says, Ah, here you are. I'm glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks, too, which are of silver like the rest, and for which you can certainly get 200 francs. 
Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. Monsieur, said the brigadier, what this man said is true then? We came across him. He was walking like a man who was running away. We stopped him to look into the matter. He had this silver. And he told you, interposed the bishop with a smile, that it had been given to him by a kind old fellow of a priest and with whom he had passed the night. I see how the matter stands, and you have brought him back here. It is a mistake. In that case, replied the brigadier, we can let him go. Well, certainly, replied the bishop. The brigadier released Jean Valjean, who recoiled. Is it true that I am to be released? He said, yes, thou art released. Dost thou not understand, said one of the brigadiers? My friend, resumed the bishop, before you go, here are your candlesticks. Take them. Jean Valjean was trembling in every limb. He took the two candlesticks mechanically and with bewildered air. At that moment, the brigadier officers left, and it's, the, it's just the bishop and Jean Valjean. And the bishop draws near in a low voice, and he says, do not forget, never forget that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw from it black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. This is a novel that has enthralled, I mean, countless generations. Countless people have been transformed by, really, this, this one scene here where Jean Valjean experiences grace. And this story, although fictional, is actually rooted in what we would submit to you as non-fictional. And um, last fall, we began going through the letter to the Ephesians, and we talked about this grace that is available, that God has toward us. In chapters 1 to 3, to just summarize it very briefly for you, we found out that we were actually like Jean Valjean, that we were guilty, that we were condemned, that we were actually under judgment, and it was rightly so. But that God in his grace and his kindness had sent Jesus. And because of the work of Jesus, he had actually rescued us and delivered us. He would actually adopted us into his family. And even given his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. Perhaps one of the best summaries is in chapter 2 where Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And this news, if you understand it, if it lands on you, it, it cannot help but evoke a similar response to what Jean Valjean 
experienced in those moments is he's given the two candlesticks. He was left bewildered and trembling. And this grace in John Viljohn's life was not without effect. In fact, the rest of the novel is actually him working out what does it mean to live a life worthy in light of the grace I've been shown. And that's actually where we find ourselves in the letter to the Ephesians. At the very beginning of Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He is in essence saying, because you have experienced this grace, because of what God has done for you in Jesus, in spite of your sin, therefore, in response to that, live a life worthy of that calling. And the next nine weeks, we're going to be going through Ephesians 4 to 6, and the whole thing is pretty much that. What does it look like to live a life when this grace that's found in Jesus lands on you? How ought we to respond? And before we enter into our text this morning, I want to be very clear about this. Um, If you're not a Christian here this morning, or if you are for a point of clarification, um, let me summarize it this way. And, and it's one that's really helpful. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, just talks about this. It's really helpful. He, he talks about the uniqueness of the Christian faith as opposed to every other religion under the sun. And he basically says this, every other religion under the sun says this, if you want to have a relationship with God, this is kind of how it works. You obey, you do enough things, and then you can be accepted by God. That's how every religion under the sun operates. But Christianity actually flips that, completely changes that. It says, in essence, I am accepted purely through Christ. That's it. My hope's in Him. And therefore, I obey. And that order is so important. You can't flip that order. So this is going to sound very just simple, but it's really important to understand that Ephesians 4 to 6 comes after Ephesians 1 to 3. I know. (laughs) My kid could have told me that, right? Thanks, Dad. You're really smart. Yeah, I know. But it's really important that God has done something for us, and then in gratitude, we live a life worthy. In fact, that's what fuels a life that is transformed by this. So, we are going to be seeing two things this morning in our text about what that looks like. What what, what do we do? What does life look like when this grace comes and it lands on you? How do we live lives that are worthy of that gracious calling? And the first thing that we're going to see is this, is that it means that we are to live as a community who's at one. Who's one? Um, in verse 3, this kind of summarizes it for this section, but Paul writes, he says, eager 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And what I want you to understand in, in the whole letter to the Ephesians, you'll notice that in Ephesians 1 and the first part of chapter 2, he talks a lot about our relationship to God. But then he kind of turns the corner halfway through chapter 2 and he begins to say, actually, when, when the gospel comes to you, you're not just kind of brought back into a relationship with God, you're actually brought back into relationship with others. That God is actually going to bring you together with others. He reconciles relationships horizontally. And so it's not surprising here that Paul begins saying, hey, if you want to know what it looks like to live in light of this gospel, this grace, actually it gets worked out right here in the midst of these relationships. And he says, live as one. Learn to live as a community that lives as one. And kind of what I, I like about this is the very nature that Paul leads with this assumes that this isn't going to be easy. <laughs> you know? Like, this is not going to be a cakewalk. Um, you, you'll notice, like, the gospel doesn't allow you to pick your family members any more than your own family members, right? You know what it's like. Some of you are really glad that you just got out of the holiday season because you've been around family, and that's not easy. Usually you can kind of go a couple months and then, you know, give them a call, right? Or, I don't know, whatever, message them. But in the gospel, you actually don't get to pick your family members. I mean, this is not a club where you get to, like, sign on a line and you have enough money and you get in. It's also not a place where, like, you pass some moral exam and you kind of come in. No, it's purely by faith in Jesus. You don't, you don't get to pick who's in the family, It assumes that it's going to be messy at times. Um, the text creates space for the times. Think about perhaps maybe at Citigroup, the groups we meet throughout the week with, um, where you eat and you discuss the scriptures. Um, it assumes that at some point, those very people are going to let you down. It assumes that there are going to be people that you're going to be called to actually love that get on your nerves. That rub you the wrong way. Um, in verse 2, Paul says, bearing with one another in love. The, around the breakfast table this morning, we were talking about this as a family, and I, and I said, well, Amanda asked, uh, what does that mean, kids? And um, I think Grace said, um, to love, especially when it's not easy, you know? <laughs> love people who are not easy to love, or when it's not easy to love, when it's not convenient. Paul says this, hear this, this is really important, like, to flesh out this gospel, this grace you've been called to, means it has to actually land on these relationships here. And, and Paul does a couple things to help this take place? He kind of gives a couple, I would say, ingredients that makes this possible. And the first is this. He, he talks about cultivating a certain type of character. So in verse 2, he unpacks this character. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Did you notice the threefold thing of humility, gentleness, and patience? Um, imagine what it's like to be in relationship with individuals 
who are growing in the graces of humility, gentleness, and patience. Um, just, just imagine stepping into perhaps a city group this week where relationships are marked by humility, where people come and they're more caught up with Jesus and they're more caught up with others and they think less and less and less of themselves. Like they're not showing up going, I need to get my needs met. This time is about me. But rather, they show up and they're thinking about those that they're going to eat with. Those that they're going to talk about Scripture with. Those that they're going to do whatever else with this week. Imagine a community where when sin is confessed or shortcomings and weaknesses kind of bubble to the top, rather than responding in harshness and self-righteousness, rather it's met with a spirit of patience and gentleness that makes room for failure and weakness and allows for shortcomings. I mean, sign me up. Like, I want to find that city group, okay? <laughs> and obviously you know by me saying that, that this is a process. Th- think about this for a moment. Paul's suggesting that if you're going to live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, that one of the obstacles to unity, to living as one, is pride is impatience, is harshness. But a community that is growing in cultivating humility, gentleness, and patience, that actually what happens in that community, in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of broken lives who are in the process of being made new, that actually unity can actually happen can actually take place, that it can go beyond a veneer of trivial relationships, okay? Not just surfacy, nice smile, but you can actually be known, and there's room for failure. But that can only happen when those qualities of patient love, gentleness, humility are happening, are being cultivated. Um, I don't know about you, but it makes me pause and think, like, which one of those is the hardest for me? You know? Um, Am I a person that's just quick to fly off the handle, not patient? Am I just a person that constantly is thinking about expectations I have for others in relationships versus how do I serve others? Um, And the questions go on. And I, I recognize, oh, I need help. Like, I don't have this down. And I think this is the part where the question is, well, how do we grow in that, right? If we recognize there's this gap between who I'm called to be and where I am, like, how do I grow in that? And would it not surprise us <clears throat> that the same gospel that has called us into this community, into a relationship with God, is the very thing that actually helps cultivate that in our lives. Because don't you understand that God has been patient toward me? 
and towards you? Do you not see that God has been gentle towards you and toward me? God has actually been humble. In Philippians 2, it's one of my favorite passages about this. It talks about Jesus, who at one point, with the very nature of God, in the, in, in, in the sense that his, his status was way up here, the highest of all highs, and it says that he made himself a servant. And it says that he humbled himself, being obedient unto death for you and for me, for my sins. Because we weren't going to humble ourselves, he humbled himself. It's, it's the very gospel itself, the, the very reflection of, oh man, do you, do I recall, am I thinking, am I Reminding myself, am I in awe of the fact that God has been patient and humble and gentle toward me? That's how it happens. The second thing that Paul grabs onto in order to, for us to live as one is he, he really talks about what we have in common. Um, in verses 4 to 6, he says this, There is one body and one spirit, you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Um, <laughs> one, 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 over and over and over again. And, and Paul is saying, do you not know who you are in this community? Do you not understand what you have in common? You know, and we're all used to this, right, in our relationships. Um, normally, like, we have various affinities, do we not? You know, like, I grew up in this state. I like this team. I'm voting for this person. Um, and the more things you have in common, right, the more ways that that transcends perhaps any differences you might have. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, do you not understand that in the gospel, your <laughs> any differences you have are trumped and transcended by the fact that you have the same Lord and the same faith and the same baptism and the same... Do you get it? Think about this week, um, perhaps when you're at your city group. Look around the room and find the person you have the least in common with. Okay? I mean, don't make this apparent like tonight, like Nate told me to do this, and you, you, know, you kind of gaze around, right? That would kind of, then they'd have to bear with you in love, and that would maybe be okay. We could all apply this, right? Um, but think about this. Maybe the person that actually votes Republican or votes Democrat, and you know it, like it's come out, okay? Or they're a different race. Or their paycheck's different. Or they're in a different life stage. Do you not understand that in the gospel, it transcends all those differences? And I'm telling you, ground zero for living out a life that's worthy of the gospel, guess what? That relationship defines it.
Uh, w- one more thing in this section. Um, Paul says he commands them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And it's hard to um, translate what, what the original language is saying there. It, it has a sense of urgency and haste to it. It has a sense that if there's any conflict between individuals, it's almost like you should not let me finish the message before you stand up and go get right or move toward them. I'll give you permission not to. But that's what it's getting at. If there's any conflict, if there is any division, that your head tonight would not hit the pillow until you move toward that individual humbly with gentleness and patience. Even if you think, like, think about this for a moment, like in marriage, like even if you think it's 90% their fault, it doesn't matter. You go up and you own your 10%. And guess what? It's probably more. Okay? Maybe from your vantage point, it's not. But it, trust me, I've been there. Usually you're, it's a little bit skewed. And here's why. I mean, th- this is why this is why it's so important. Um, when you see the book of Ephesians and you begin to get this vision of the church, what it's to be, you know, it's, it's like a 1.0, a beta, a beta version launch of a software. You know, it's not perfect, okay? But it's this new thing, and it's supposed to point toward where all things are headed, which is God reconciling all things in his son Jesus and to one another. And the church, in its relationships with one another, is to be a snapshot of that to the city. Now, let's turn the corner. The last section deals with living out, really, the the gifts that Jesus gives us for the building up the body of Christ. And I want to just pause for a moment from the text, and I just want to say something because I think this is important. Um, I think normative, kind of North American mindset of what the church is and what Christianity is, oftentimes, now whether you hold this or not, I don't think you can be not affected by it in some sense, um, our culture oftentimes sees churches. This is the place I go on Sunday. This is the place where perhaps I'll throw a few dollars in the plate. I'll, I'll make sure that there's someone here who has some training, who does some teaching. If I have a friend who wants to know more about Jesus, I'll kind of invite them. And by the way, I'm not saying any of that is bad. I'm saying that's all really good. But I am saying if that's all it is to be the church, then I'm saying we're very much missing out on what the picture is, actually who we are. And I think of any text, this text right here, it kind of just blows that vantage point or mindset of what the church is out of the water. I just can't hold. So, so look with me for a moment at verse 7. Paul transitions and he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, this is talking about Jesus giving spiritual gifts. And in the next couple verses, he quotes an Old Testament text, and we're not going to get into all the ins and outs of that, but in essence, it's this. It talks about Jesus after he died, after he rose from the dead, that he ascended, 
that he's now ruling. And as the one who's ruling, he's actually scattered gifts to his people to be used for the advancement of his church. Now, what this means practically is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have at least one spiritual gift. At least one. And that's, that's a gift that's by grace. It's not like you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, you didn't sign up for it. God has given it to you through Jesus. He, he's given it to you by grace. He's the source. He's designed it. Now, look with me for a moment, down at verse 16. Because I want, I want to put this two, these two things together. In verse 16 it says, From whom the whole body that's talking about the church joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when, now listen here, each part is working properly. That's talking about everybody. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you see what's happening there? It's saying this, Jesus has scattered gifts to his people, that they are to be a people who use these gifts, each part, everybody playing a part, so that the church might be built up, might grow. And Paul lists five of the gifts here. And there's other places you can go, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, where there's more of an expanded list. But Paul lists five. He talks... Um, this is in uh, verse 11. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. He lists five of these things. And it means that this, that in the body of Christ, there's a diversity of gifts. Diversity. Um, I remember a couple years ago, well, this is about maybe like 10 years ago, um, watching The Amazing Race. And um, if you guys have ever watched that show, um, this particular season, the participants in it um, one was like a family, you know, it was like, I don't know, like a mom and a dad and like some teenage kids. And then one of the other participants was a group of Navy SEALs, okay? And if you know anything about the Amazing Race, like, you know, it's, there's obstacles. There's things you need to do to actually get to the point and win the race, right? I remember thinking like, these SEALs are going to kill it. Like, forget about this family. I mean, I don't know what the SEALs can do, but let's forget about it. You know, it's incredible. The Navy SEALs were one of the first people out. And do you know why? Because they all fought the same. They all were trained in the same way. I mean, this little family over here whooped them. You know? It was awesome. (laughs) Because they were all the same. And Paul is saying here, there's this diversity of gifts. There's this, listen to me here, we are dependent on one another. Okay? No, Jesus has not given one person all the gifts, trust me. Okay? We are dependent on one another. I mean, imagine for a moment, let's just say you had um, a city group where the only thing that was in the gifts were, like, was a teacher. Everybody was teachers. You know what happened to that city group? They'd be like a bunch of nerds reading their Bibles and like, oh, we know a whole lot about Jesus. This is awesome. And it would be great. But no one would actually meet Jesus because they're all a bunch of teachers. You need some evangelists in there. You know? But if you had a whole city group of like just evangelists, I mean, that'd be great too, but then a lot of people would like meet Jesus, but then no one would actually grow up 
and actually walk with Jesus because they're all like over here and I don't know, figure it out. I got to tell more people about Jesus. You need shepherds who can care and nurture and walk alongside. There's this diversity of gifts that are so important. Um, this last week, our, our city group uh, worked through these, this text and we just asked the question, well, hey, how could we grow in light of understanding that Jesus has given each one of us gifts? And I'll just share with you kind of what, what they came up with. Um, the first one was we should just help identify each other's gifts. And so there's two things. One is we, um, and actually it's on the discussion guide this week, but there's a survey you can take online that actually deals specifically with these five gifts. And so they all, most of them, if you haven't yet taken it, um, took the survey that kind of helps identify within these five gifts where you kind of operate best. But we also said, um, hey, we've been doing life together for a while now. We've probably seen these gifts like in others. And so we said, hey, why don't we just, as we've seen that, actually communicate to that person, hey, I've seen this in you. And so a number of us have, have done that this week. And lastly, here, here's our goal. We, we're doing this, um, <laughs> we're doing this uh, social at the end of the month in which we're going to go ice skating and sledding at Elver Park. And we're just thinking about our identity of living out this mission of being sent ones. And we said, hey, we're going to invite some people who don't know Jesus, whom we love, just to come and ice skate and sled with us. And then afterwards, grab some hot chocolate somewhere or whatever. And um, it'd be great. Wouldn't it be awesome if we all showed up and, like, we knew our role during that time? Like, we didn't have to be somebody else. We could be exactly who God has designed us to be. Um, this hasn't happened yet, but I'll tell you three things I know about our group. There's one woman in our group who is very much, I would say, an evangelist. And you know how she operates? She invites a ton of people. You've probably been invited to our city group by her, if you've been here, even one time. She's always inviting. Always inviting. Doesn't matter who you are. Um, there's another guy in our group who, when that new person shows up, like, I'm not joking, like, he'll have a 30 to 45 minute conversation with that person and it's not, like, weird or awkward. It's really natural. He loves people well. It's amazing. Like, I invited my neighbor this summer. We did, like, went to, like, I don't know, um, Conscious on the Square. And, like, I couldn't even talk to my neighbor because he was hogging the conversation. It was great. It was awesome. Um, there's some people in our group are more quiet, reserved, behind the scenes. One of the ways they're going to serve is just in prepping a place to have hot chocolate and other things afterward. Create an environment that's just hospitable, being welcoming. Guess what? That demonstrates Jesus, who is hospitable toward us. Um, everybody just gets to be themselves, who God's made them to be. Um, guess what I get to do? Okay, this is awesome. I love being a pastor and being in a city group like this because I get to show up and meet people, and um, a lot of them will be like return faces, but there'll be some new people, and you know, it'll happen. The conversation happens like, oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And then like there's like two minutes of silence, just like that's weird. And they think like, like they're supposed to confess their sins or something. Like, I don't know, whatever. It's weird. But guess what I'm not going to do? My job is to not invite them to Redeemer City. I'm serious. I am never inviting people to Redeemer City in that situation. And you know why? Two things. One is, I'm not a used car salesman, okay? Like, this is not something that I'm doing so I can build up this thing that I'm trying to do. 
That's not it at all. No, no, no. And guess what? I don't have to invite them to Redeemer City because guess what? They're already in the midst of it. Because we're a people. Guess what? They're in the midst of it. I mean, really, isn't that awesome? Isn't that great to think about being a part of a diverse body, gifted, united on this mission? And you just get to be you? Like, I can do that. So, let me ask you a question. Start here. Think about those you know in this community. How has God gifted them? Maybe you're just here for the first um, couple weeks or first few months. You don't know a whole lot of people. Maybe it's a conversation that you have with another friend or another um, a spouse, perhaps. But l- let me say this. Start with others first. And think about, gosh, how has God gifted them? And I encourage you to have conversations this week, perhaps even um, especially in your city groups this week. And then also ask the question, well, what about me? <laughs> how am I gifted? How has God designed me? How has he wired me? And then, how do I put those into practice? And as you'll notice, um, <laughs> what's really amazing about this whole text is that it demands community. You know what I mean? Like, you can't be an individual Christian um, trying to live as one. <laughs> well, you could, I suppose. You might hate yourself and you want to love your, whatever, you know. But really, it demands a community, you know? Living out your gifts, it demands a community. And so, perhaps for some of you who aren't in the city group yet, like, that's what it means. You step in and you just figure this out as you go. Um, let me, let me pose one more question here today. Uh, can you imagine a community of people who are just ordinary? They're ordinary people. You know, they're very different, but yet they fight to live as one in the midst of shortcomings and failures and sin and all the various differences, and yet they fight for unity. Can you imagine what that would do in the city, what that would communicate to the city? Could you imagine a community of ordinary people who just simply, faithfully serve God and serve one another with the gifts that Jesus has given them? What what would happen? What might happen? Let me Let me close with how Paul opens this section. In light of the grace that you have received in Jesus, let me, along with myself, urge us to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. Let's pray. So gracious God, we give you thanks for your mercy we have received through your son Jesus. God, in the midst of relationships that, if not presently, will for sure future be marked by failures and shortcomings and sin, would you help us to hold the line and fight for unity? Would you help us to bear with one another in love? Would you enable us to do that? Jesus, would you help us to be a people who faithfully serve you 
with the gifts we have received so that this gospel might spread ever wider and ever deeper. And we ask this for your sake. Amen.